Good morning, everyone. We thank God for allowing us to gather once more for another Sunday school hour and hopefully a Lord's Day where we will worship Him and encourage one another in the Lord. My name is Eric Abuao, and if you're here for the first time, either in person online, I would like to extend a warm welcome to you in the Lord. We are going through a Sunday school series on personal productivity, and we are asking ourselves, how does personal productivity look like from a God-centered and a gospel-driven perspective? How does personal productivity look like from a God-centered and from a gospel-driven perspective? Is there any difference in our approach when we think about personal productivity, a God-centered and a gospel-driven perspective from that approach that would be there in the world? And we are hopefully so far seeing, yes, there is a, a huge, huge difference. And scripture does speak to this matter of personal productivity, and it speaks to it in a God-centered way and in an, using an approach that is motivated by the gospel. So before we go on, we will, we will pray. I'll recap a bit what we've so far learned and then learn a few more things today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, who else is better to teach us about productivity than you? You're the God who ensures that the things he intends to do are done. And you do so with holiness, with uh, omnipotence, and for the glory of your name. And we come to you as those who recognize that you have taught us that you desire that we bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit, in the Lord Jesus Christ as we abide in him, the true vine. We come to you as those who recognize from your word and from the realities of our lives that without you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to abide in you. Help us, O oh Lord, during this Sunday school hour to be strengthened in our abiding in you. That those who have sadly not uh, begun to be found in you would come to faith in Christ, that they would be saved, that they would abide in you. And those who are saved would be strengthened in so doing. And so, O oh Lord, we pray, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your law. And this for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far, we have, particularly last Sunday, we defined productivity from a biblical perspective, and we asked ourselves a number of questions that touch on productivity with regards to 
what motivates us in productivity? Where are we to be productive? What does productivity look like? And we have so far said that in a world where productivity is ambiguous, we need to remember that productivity is doing what needs to be done. And what needs to be done? The answer to that question is what God wants to be done. Okay, so that's very simple. Productivity is doing what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is what God wants to be done. And scripture does tell us abundantly that God wants us to do good works. Okay, so Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works uh, that he prepared for us beforehand. Matthew, the Lord calling us in Matthew, to let our deeds so shine before men that they would behold our good works and please be, be, and, and worship the Lord. And we saw a number of things and we asked ourselves, so is this good works a kind of thing that we do occasionally? So we work Monday through Saturday, then we come to church to do good works. Is good works this stuff that you do only when you retire and now you have money in your bank account to enable you to go out and do good works? And we said, no. The frame of mind in the scripture in defining what good works is, have us not just the spectacular, and indeed we ought to aspire to do those great things. We, we need to be those whose mindset, as that of the old divine, is to attempt great things for God, expect great things from him, to set goals that are so big that if they succeed, it is obvious that God has helped you. It is, it is impossible to achieve them without God. That ought to be our mindset, to pursue the spectacular, the significant for God and in God. But we also say the daily things also are within that bracket of what is good works. So that we saw when widows were being assessed to see if they were true widows, Paul says those who had excelled in good works. And part of the good works listed there was raising children. So raising children is good works in Scripture. We also did see that slaves in Ephesians chapter 6 are told to excel in good works. So a slave would be doing good works in the scope of things that... Uh, that is within the biblical frame of things. And later on, Matthew 25, we know that Jesus Christ on the judgment day, as he, as he is, you know, passing out the rewards, the good works listed there are things that people did and they're even surprised it's being rewarded. Visiting the sick, is that going to be rewarded here? Going to prison to see a brother or sister who was 
who was sadly incarcerated for his faith, is, is that going to be rewarded? The Lord says, giving out water in his name to one of his own is good works, and such rewards should not be lost. So we did see that the scope of good works is whatever is done in faith and for God. We also did see that our motivation in doing good works is love for God, and therefore a desire to keep the second greatest commandment also, love for our neighbor. So these are things we saw last week, and we saw how that in loving our neighbor, we are motivated to be generous. If you're a generous person, you will be productive. We saw that a generous person excels in keeping that summary of the second table of the law, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that would show up in things like having a real goodwill toward the other person. And when you're goodwilled towards the other person, you excel in serving them. Good works would be seen as we love our neighbor because we would put the other person first. We will excel in the golden rule. As you put the other person first, you will be productive. Good works would be seen in how you'd be eager in meeting the, 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 the needs of others. We would not be begrudging. We would not be reluctant. We would not, uh, as Pastor Murungi challenged us yesterday from Peter's epistle, we would not be grumbling as we serve others. We would be eager, we would be loving our neighbor, and we would excel in good works. We would be enthusiastic, we would be joyful, we would be creative, we would get a kick out of serving our neighbor. Without this, without this capacity, God-given capacity that he grants to us as we come to faith in the Lord, which is a big thing we are going to see, we will be reluctant, we will be indifferent, we would be grumbling, we would be grudging, we would be bored, we would be looking forward, we would be those people with the thank God it's Friday mindset. We leave, we leave for Friday. Actually, we leave for weekends. And uh, Friday is just the stepping stone into the weekend. Uh, we will be proactive, not reactive, in doing good. We'll, we'll be going into places and just with that antenna of who needs help, what needs to be done. We'll be very proactive. And because that's the way we love ourselves, we are proactive in how we care for ourselves. We also did see that we will avoid a self-protective mindset and be willing to risk in doing good to others. We will strive to grow in competence. We will, as we strive to do good, we will not be lazy. We will not be shoddy in our work. This is the radical nature that we saw that touches on the Christian ethic. When it comes to productivity, we need to realize that Christians are not just people who are called not to do this and not to do that. We are called to do good works. There is a place indeed for 
a Christian, appreciating that we, we, by God's grace, are being trained to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, but we're also being called to say yes to self-controlled uprightness and a godly life. I concluded last week by saying this, that a person who, a Christian, who is not being productive, and indeed any person who is not being productive needs to realize that they are engaging in vandalism. Scripture does teach us that the person who is slack in his work, Proverbs 18 verse 9, is a brother to him who destroys. So slack work is like vandalism. It is like vandalism because it makes life harder for other people, just like vandalism makes life harder for other people. So we are saying that as we strive for generosity, we need to realize that excellence in our work is actually a form of generosity. It is a form of love. Love for God demonstrated in love for our neighbor. So excellence, productivity, is generosity. On the other hand, we can therefore also say that poor quality of work, shoddiness in our work, is a form of stinginess and selfishness. When we are shoddy in our work, we are not just being shoddy, we are refusing to love our neighbor, and we are refusing to love God. We are to be generous. We are to be generous, brothers and sisters, not just with the results of our work, not just with the money that comes into our account, but actually in our work, as you're engaged in that work, you're striving for excellence because you're not just doing good with the money you will get from that job, but in the job itself, you're doing good. This is the Christian ethic when it comes to productivity. Excellence at work is going to be one way in which we express love. We will ensure we are making usable things, we will be creative in how we produce, we, we generate products that lift burdens rather than products and services that create burdens. We will be keen on designs that we come up with, designs that are beautiful, that are appealing, that express to the recipients and the consumers of what we are putting out that we love them. Having said that, a lengthy recap, we need to ask ourselves, how does the gospel make us productive? Because I'm talking about personal productivity that is God-centered and that is gospel-driven. The gospel makes us productive in a way that would be a paradox. Because what the gospel does 
is it brings you to a place where you realize you don't need to be productive and therefore you become productive. Not in a rebellious way. You remember part of the problem with the whole struggle that people have with productivity is a lack of fulfillment, a lack of significance, a lack of meaning, a desire to, to, to earn some bonga points, to use that colloquial here, with God and with man. The gospel brings you to a place where you realize, you know what, I, I don't have to do this. I don't have to, to earn bonga points with God or with man, all that is there for me to be given by God, I have already been given. And therefore, you have been brought to this place where you are recognizing that your holiness does not precede reconciliation with God. It's actually the other way around that reconciliation with God precedes your growth in holiness and love for God. I'm saying that if we are going to be massively productive, that is not going to come out first and foremost, from being psyched up from some moral exhortation or appeals to change. Rather, it is going to be the result of understanding the doctrine of justification. This particular doctrine is crucial in productivity. I hope to make a case for that. In other words, I'm saying when we embrace the truth that God has accepted us apart from good works, then that would become the precise reason why we excel in good works. That the only way we are going to be productive in the Christian sense and in as a way that, that counts in eternity is for us to realize that we don't have to be productive. So what is justification? Just use your words. I know we are trying to, Pastor Murungi did a beautiful job in putting forth that credo very clear definition of what justification is. What is justification? Yes, yes. Justification is being counted righteous before God because of uh, the finished work of Christ. Being counted righteous before God because of the free, finished work of Christ. Anything else together with the finished work of Christ? Or it's the finished work of Christ alone? 
it's the finished work of Christ alone. Yes. Nothing else. Nothing, nothing more, nothing less. Okay. The finished work of Christ. Being counted righteous before God. Any other thought? Any other way you'd want to put it? Okay, so, so are we, anyone of a different opinion, maybe that would, be, would have been the more important question to ask. Anyone who says, no, I hold a different perspective. So we are on the same page. When we talk about justification, we are being, we are thinking about being brought into a right relationship with God so that now you are at peace with him. You have a title to eternal life, not because of anything you have done, not even because of anything that has been done in you. It is because of what Christ has done for you, apart from you, completely apart from you. And he justifies you. He, he brings you to a place where your sins, past sins, are forgiven. And apart from that, your past sins being dealt with, you are clothed with his righteousness. So your history is dealt with, your present and your future sins are dealt with, sin is dealt with, and you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at you, you are accepted. You don't have to do anything to be accepted with God. That is justification, those two components. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. The sermon today, so that's an appetizer. The sermon today is going to even do scuba diving on that. So come eager. And I'm going to interest you a little bit more on why you ought to embrace this doctrine if you want to be personally productive. Many people have the misguided notion that the essence of Christianity is being a good person. But you see, we don't talk about good advice. We talk about good news. Good advice would be you need to be moral. You need to be productive. You need to do the right thing. Go out there and come up with New Year resolutions. That would be good advice. But we know it can't work. Our problem is not that we don't know what we should do. It is that outside Christ, we cannot do what we know we should do. So I'm not saying moral instruction is wrong. But when we put the cart before the horse, when we start with, with the notion that what I need is to do right so that God accepts me, then we will shoot ourselves on the feet continuously. Justification by works is, in other words, striving to be accepted by God through your good behavior is not only wrong, it is impossible. It is impossible because before you are forgiven, you have no good works to offer. You have no good works to offer. 
the standard that God has demands that it is only those who are poor in spirit, those who realize, I, I have nothing to bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It's only those who would then uh, become the heirs of the kingdom. Let's, let's think about a text in scripture. I would like to invite us to Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 8. Now, in justification, we are saying that the essence of the gospel, the essence of Christianity, is that our acceptance by God does not depend on us. The gospel is about what God did for us in Christ, not about what we do for God. So remember, we are talking about personal productivity from a God-centered and a gospel-driven perspective. And today, we are talking about how the gospel transforms the way we are productive. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4 to 8, this is what the scriptures say. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul there, writing to Timothy in verse 8, says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. And he gives the reason. Insisting on these things, verse 8. You see the so that in verse 8. He tells Timothy, insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So, Titus is to insist on something, okay? To whom is he to insist on these things? Look at verse 8 again. Insist on these things so that who? Those who have believed in God, okay? So insist on these things to those who are already Christians, okay? Now let's ask ourselves contextually what is the these things that we are talking about? Just going back from where we read from verse 4. It is about justification by grace alone through faith. Okay? And what's the impact in verse 8 
of insisting on that doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith to people who are already believers. What's the impact of it in verse 8? They will be careful, isn't it? They will be more devoted to what? To good works. And this is just one of the places where we can make a case, dear brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, that please don't play around with doctrine. We live in a world where doctrine is boring, it's for some theological nerds who, who, who just don't have some fun stuff to do. We are pragmatic. We want to be practical people who get things done. Justification is, and so Pastor Murungi is preaching on justification and you're thinking, when will we get to Romans 12? Please don't do that. If you get to Romans 12 and we are reading in view of God's mercy and you did not understand God's mercy in chapter 8, you will not offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Am I making sense? I plead with you. Please, if you've had this habit as a believer of thinking doctrine is for those people, it's, it's not for me. It's for people who are bigger, better, and it could be out of that sense of humility that I'm, I'm not, I'm, who am I to think about election and and for knowledge, and this kind of big theological things. Let's ask ourselves, who are, who, are, who are forming the audience in this church in Ephesus? Slaves are being mentioned here in this letter. Children are being spoken to in chapter 6. Children obey your parents in the Lord. They are in church. In church when justification is being taught in, in Ephesians. Who are being spoken to in Romans with those huge doctrines being taught in Romans? If you look at the greetings at the end of the book of Romans, it is you and me. It is, it is not the high and mighty theologically. We throw away these doctrines. We will not be productive. Any comment, any thought? So Titus is to insist on these things and we are encouraged to encourage Titus, whoever Titus is in our space, to insist on these things and we ourselves must have an appetite that brings us to a place where we insist on these things. Because insisting on these things results in good works in the believer's life. Paul sees a very close and essential relationship between doctrine and practice. He tells you this, that sound doctrine is not just the foundation for action. Sound doctrine causes us to be effective in our action.
So why does the doctrine of justification lead us to a place where we are radical in productivity? Why is the person who's come to a place where they realize, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto me that I should be called the child of God? Why is that kind of person radical in keeping time when they are going to work? Why is that kind of person radical in ensuring when I'm preparing this meal, I am excellent? Why is this kind of person radical in their study at school? What does the doctrine of justification lead to this kind of radical action for good? Any thoughts? Just try and think biblically. Yes, Suzanne. Good morning. Morning. Um, I think when you come to the realization that you're justified because of nothing you did and because of everything he did, when you work, mm -hmm. you do it for his glory as, mm -hmm. a, as a sacrifice to him. And so everything, you want it to be as good as it can be because even though it's just a, a poor reflection of what he gave you. Mm -hmm. It's what you can give back to him. Right. And so things like being on time or studying hard for the test or whatever it might be, mm. quilting a quilt as best you can or mm -hmm. all of the things that we do, mm. whether it's sawing a, a piece of wood or building a wall, yes. digging a ditch, yes. or doing your taxes, yes. whatever it might be. Doing the best you can do mm -hmm. is a gift back to God. It's a thank you to God. Yeah. Thank you. And, and, and Luke does a good job. Luke 7. There, from verse 41 to 43, he is forgiven much, loves much. Verse 47, he is forgiven little, loves little. And so the more you peep into the ugliness of your sin, the mercy of God in saving you, the more you get to a place when, where when you say amazing grace, you are saying it with a true sense of amazement, the higher the possibility that you'll be productive. As I've looked around, the people around my life, even here at church, who I thank God for as I look at their productivity, as I look at the people beyond the walls of this church, whom I look up to as models for productivity, as I look at history, at men like William Wilberforce, who were a great kind of persons to study when it comes to productivity. They were, William Wilberforce was extremely practical and achieved so much. Imagine standing against slave trade, almost a one-person army. As I look at that, one of the things that seems to be a common thread in all these Christians, here at church, beyond this church, and in history, is there is a love for doctrine in them. I just see a love for doctrine. There are people who are keen on spending time in the Word. They are here on time. 
they love God's people. They are, they are coming to church with notebooks. I'm not saying this to sort of embarrass you if you're not taking notes. Uh, but but they, they, they are doing these things. On the other hand, a kind of person who thinks that they can push off doctrine because they are practical, they want to just excel at work and, and grow in the career ladder, it's not long. It's not long before they self-destruct. It's not long before they begin living a life that is totally opposite their profession. And as we saw, even the business thinkers, by God's common grace, are getting to a place where they recognize that the way to be massively pro pro profitable in the marketplace is to be generous, to be thinking about how can I really give you more value than the money I receive in return. What can I do to you to ensure that when you pay for, when you pay 100, you almost get 150 worth of, of service or product from me, not that I'm making a loss, and we made that clear last week. It's not that I'm saying profit is bad, but we are saying gospel productivity is not just about profit, it is more than profit. So I'm, I'm selling to you but as I sell to you, I realize I have a friend whom I know who could serve you and I'm linking you up. And people like BNI, Business Networking International, have embraced this concept for a long time. You go into their networking sessions and they tell you the rule there is when you show up for a networking dinner, you are not going to give out your business cards. You are going to give out the business cards of other people to your friends there and tell them, I know so-and-so, you ought to meet them. And I know so-and-so, and you're required to go with at least five, was it? I think it used to be five business cards of other people whom you're going to introduce your friends to. And everyone is striving to be generous in that sense. I'm not here to talk so much about me. I'm here to talk about how I can help you by linking you with other and salespeople who have surpassed targets at work see themselves as decision-making coaches. They are giving you raw materials for you to be at a better place to make a decision. They are not, I'm twisting you. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying all this just to say, uh, to go back to what we said last week, that I'm not saying profit is bad, but I'm saying more than profit. I'm saying generosity. And that, that has been said a lot in the marketplace, sadly, not so much from the church, and we need to trumpet that as entrepreneurs here more than the world is doing. I think we could also look at another place uh, that comes to mind with regards to, to, to justification as, as a doctrine that would impact on productivity and therefore here hopefully make the case strong in your mind that the gospel will transform your productivity because this doctrine of justification frees you to serve your neighbor you no longer have to worry about your own acceptance before god you do not have to worry about your right standing with god because this has been taken care of at the cross. So you are truly, truly free. 
And how will you use your freedom to serve others, to truly serve people? You need to be a free person. We, we get to that place where in those words of, of Titus 2.14 that we looked at last time, we are zealous for good works. And why are we zealous contextually for good works? We have been redeemed. Do you remember that? Well, let's just read it because we were in Titus. Titus 2. Let's start from verse 11. Just see this beautiful thing about the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, see the beauty of justification. Again, Father magnified there in verse 14, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are eager to be productive. That's what the grace of God trains us to do. We become very, very eager to be productive. One of the things we say as we began the class uh, three Sundays ago, is we looked at myths for productivity. And many, many classes on productivity, you'd look at productivity first and foremost from a point of view of tools, if techniques, hacks, apps, give me the app, the one app that will ensure I wake up consistently next week at 5.30 a.m. or 6 a.m. to have my quiet time. That's, that's where a lot of productivity uh, classes, personal productivity classes would focus. I have, I don't know if I'll get to, to the processes. I've focused on the principles in this class because as I've looked at my own life and seen the gaps in productivity, I think at the core of it, as I've asked the Lord to help me in my own work, I've, I've seen the core of it is not processes. Apps are a dime a dozen. All you need is internet connection and, and uh, go to whatever app store or play store and you'll download so many apps. You could have so many alarms on the same phone, but still not wake up. So the issue is we've, we've not seen how we really have been loved. When we see how much God has loved us, we will be zealous. And I'm not saying there is no place for, for moral instruction, that it's all justification and grace and uh, to a point where we are throwing away moral instruction and the law and exhortations to do right. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, that the law drives us to the gospel. And the gospel frees us to obey the law. That's, that's what I'm saying. You, you, the, the law basically makes you see how high and holy God is. And you just say, oh, Lord, I can't do this. Help me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Whatever, 
response of poverty of spirit and mourning and hunger and thirst for righteousness that uh, uh, elicits in your heart. And when you come to the gospel, it returns you to the law now having enabled you to keep it. So gospel-driven Christians are Christians who are enthusiastic to do good, not to gain acceptance with God, but because they are already accepted by God. The gospel will create an affection in your heart for God, and such an affection will drive you to do good works, good works that serve God, that, that serve human beings and pleases God as you do that. The gospel will make us truly productive. And that not only affects us personally, your pocketbook will enlarge the more problems you solve in society, the more contribution you make in society. And the longer you do this, the odds are high that society will give you a certificate of appreciation with a one followed by a number of zeros after it's visited. They'll be saying, thank you. You solved my problem. You solved my problem. So you'll personally benefit more often than not here and now. But bigger than that, you know when scripture says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, they enter their rest and their deeds follow them. That's the bigger thing. Your deeds following you, your deeds don't precede you, they follow you. You enter by grace alone, but then there are rewards of grace in heaven. And Matthew 25 teaches that. There are rewards of grace in heaven. And Matthew 6 teaches that. Do your righteousness before God, not before man, to receive a reward from them, but before God. Another area where the gospel will affect us is we have peace of mind. You remember we said part of the big problem with productivity issues today is there's just a lack of peace. A lack of peace on a number of fronts. People don't have peace because for them to have peace, all I's must be dotted, all T's must be crossed, and as long as any I or any T hasn't been dealt with, then you don't have peace. And you come to church and you're uptight. And I'm not saying don't be concerned when things are undone. There is a place for that. And one can even make a biblical defense for that at times when Paul would uh, struggle in his heart because he things weren't done the way they were supposed to have been done. But we do know that that uh, the Lord teaches through the Apostle Paul that ultimately peace is a thing that God gives. And he doesn't give it because of us having crossed all T's and dotted all I's. He tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
in everything, dear brothers and sisters, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind, hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So making our peace of mind dependent on what we do is ultimately a low-best approach to the Christian life. It is just like basing our acceptance by God on our good works in a low-based approach to justification. The peace of God which surpasses human understanding is a gift that God gives us through faith in him. Paul teaches us here is that the way to have peace when we can't keep everything under control is to come to God in prayer with our anxieties. This is an aspect of personal productivity that we ought to embrace. We will wrestle with thorns and thistles at home, here at church, in the marketplace. And if we are waiting for everything to become perfect, we will not have peace. And yet, it is not right. God provides for us to have peace in the here and now as we look forward to the perfected time when all things will be fulfilled, there'll be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more pain, no more death, only joy. As we look forward to that time, we can have peace today. So just as we do good works from justification rather than for justification, gospel-driven approach to personal productivity will also do good works from peace rather than for peace. I do not work hard at work in order to have peace. I do so because there's already peace with God. And more than that, he is allowing me to have the peace of God. And so that's the platform that I'm building my good works on. I'm not building on a foundation of works so that I have peace. I'm building on a foundation of peace as I do this good works. Gospel-centered productivity puts it in a place where peace comes first, not second. And that is not to say the Christian is just this person who is just incompetently happy. Ignorance and bliss just commingle. No, we, we know the ideal. We see the, the current state. We groan because we know the variance between what is and what ought to be. We see the implementation gap between where we are and where we ought to be. But in spite of that, and 2 Corinthians chapter 2.13, you see a situation where Paul is 
is disturbed, is, is struggling with something that is not as it ought to be, and he acts based on that. He's not found Titus, and so he, he makes an adjustment. So there is a place for disturbance in our heart, being for good, okay? But there's a way in which we idolize good works and we almost make them the thing to bow down before in order to have peace. And so you end up with people who never go home. They just go to work. They feel guilty if they are leaving work at the contractual time when they should leave work. And we allow our bosses to mistreat us in that way because not that they've even said you can't leave work before five. It is five, you've pushed to 5.30, you didn't even take a lengthy long break because you didn't have time to gossip around the water fountain in the office. You ate your meal quickly, came back to your seat and continued working. And now you're leaving at 5.30 to go to another role, responsibility God has called you to. And there's guilt. And it's not right. Brothers and sisters, it's not right. And the Lord is committed to provide for you. He's given you life, which is more important than the food that you need to sustain that life. He will provide for you. I'm not saying be careless at work. There are days when we need to stretch. There are days when we do all-nighters in, in order to reach targets. There are those seasons. But we cannot live perennially lives where we are neglecting our children, our marriages, and other things that we've been called to because we are pursuing this peace of mind that we hopefully will get when we bow down before our boss. It is not right. And I know that requires us to walk around the block and breathe in some fresh air and ask ourselves, what will be the implications of this? It is so risky for me to leave my office at 5.30. I may be in the next crop of people who may be retrenched. I'm not saying be careless. Get cancer if you're in such situations. A lot of these problems we bring upon ourselves. God is able to keep you and to provide for you. That job, we thank God for it. It's a channel through it God is providing for you, but it is not your source. God is your source. And if you suffer for doing right, we count ourselves privileged that we are suffering uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ for doing it. I want to read something in Second Peter. As we turn there, is there any comment just so that I, I can have the microphone? Second Peter chapter 1. This is such a rich passage, it's even challenging to know where to start. Uh, start from verse 5. For this very reason, and, and part of the difficulty is 
if you don't understand the very reason, you, you may not be motivated to do the next thing. And part of the problem with people not uh, having these qualities here is they've not understood what reason Paul is giving. But that said, for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Then notice verse 8. Again, I'm making a case for scripture as a tool, doctrine, as a platform upon which we grow in productivity. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Karibu mam, karibu mam. In verse 8 he says, For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they will keep you from something. They will keep you from being ineffective and fruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, when you look at your life and you're seeing ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness, there's a problem with these virtues. You're not having these virtues. And what makes us grow in these virtues? You remember verse 5 begins with, for this reason. So you've got to back up and ask yourself, what would motivate a Christian to grow in this and dear brothers and sisters, I can simply put it this way. As you see the promises of God in the gospel, as you see what he has done for you and what he is committed to do for you in the future, you will make every effort to grow in these virtues. If you grow in these virtues, you will be preserved from unfruitfulness you will be preserved from being ineffective. On the other hand, verse 9, if you lack these qualities, you are nearsighted. You are short-sighted with regards to what? To seeing the promises of God. You are not seeing justification as you ought to see it. You are not seeing the doctrines that we are going through right now in Romans 8 as you ought to do. You need some sunglasses, some magnifier glass that will help you to love for knowledge. Love God for his foreknowing you. Love God for his calling you. Love God for how he justifies us by making us like Christ. If you are nearsighted, if you fail to see these things, if you are blind with regards to these things, if you have forgotten that you have been justified and cleansed from your former sins, you will be ineffective, you will be unfruitful. I think one of the clear implications for us from this class, if we are going to grow in personal productivity, is to be in the Word. 
We've got to be in the word. We've got to pray the word. We've got to make it, we, we recalibrate, recalibrate our taste buds to love the gathered assembly of people where the Lord is present and he instructs us, makes his will known to us. We've got to love doctrine and move away from this love for snacks when it comes to the word. I will conclude by reading what C.S. Lewis says on the matter. He says, for my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology. He adds with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand, of course, uh, yeah. Do away with the section of tobacco. <laughs> but what he's saying is a love for doctrine will affect your practice. So read books, read Knowing God by J.I. Parker. It's impacted me. Read The Pleasures of God, John Piper. Oh, hugely impacted me uh, some years back. The Holiness of God by Sproul. These books don't look like they would have any devotional impact on you, but they will. Sovereignty of God, A.W. Pink. What are the books? Come to mind, I know, I know you. you know, I thought you said something behind the mask. I see any other books you'd recommend. A long list. I, 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 uh, yes. But we can be productive. The Bible provides a way of being productive. We don't have to rely on worldly, new age methodologies of productivity. See, the secret, law of attraction. And, uh, you know, name it and claim it approaches. Take it till you make it approaches. We don't have to do that. It is a shame, a huge shame, when we as Christians leave the true honey of God's work to go for band-aid solutions that won't last for long. And I'm not saying there is no common grace that God has given out in the marketplace amongst people who are not believers. There's quite a bit. But why make the foundation of our productivity common grace when we have special revelation? This is the foundation. The others, now we go to with the attitude of the Israelite who is plundering Egypt. We take the nectar and we leave the thorns. But if you've not been trained to design, you'll, you'll read Covey, and there's a lot of good stuff in Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or Fast Things First. There's a lot of good things there, but if you are not careful, 
before you know it, you're embracing thoughts that have come into you without you knowing it. The way when you are on drip intravenously, you don't feel what's coming in, but it changes you. So you've got to start here if you can effectively design what's happening. I think I'll stop. It's five minutes past 10. Uh, anything? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us in revealing truth. Your word is truth, and it sanctifies us. And as it does so, it is honey sweet in our lips. Yes, there are times when we take it and it comes with a sting, but it is the rebuke of one who loves us rather than the pacifying peace of our arch enemy. And so we thank you for your word. We please pray, O oh Lord, that in our desire to be productive, we would realize that we are doing so as a response. We are loving because you have first loved us. That, Lord, we would, having been forgiven much, strive to love much, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves because you have graciously and mercifully loved us. Oh Lord, in a time when many people either preach doctrine in ways that are boring or receive the preaching of doctrine as if it is boring, help us. Help us as a church to love the truth. Help us in our private moments to take seriously the reading, the studying, the meditating, the memorizing of your word. O oh Lord, enable us to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Grant, O oh Lord, that the impact of this, among other things, would be deeds that so shine before men, not just for self-aggrandizement, but so that as people behold these deeds, they would worship you. We please pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.